welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Professor Jedediah Purdy, who um, is just recently now a, a, a law professor at Columbia. Previously, you, you were at Duke, if I'm not mistaken, and um, uh, longtime sort of author and and uh, writer, scholar, been around here and there, and uh, most recently author of a book called This Land is Our Land, um, uh, which, which we'll get into, but uh, uh, numerous other books as well. So uh, wel- welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Ryan, Alexi. It's nice to be here with you. <laughs> Great, and and I thought you know we we can sort of just you know see where we where we end up, but a uh, good place to start maybe uh, would be with the with the title of the book, which um, as as people may or may not know, this this land uh, this land is our land, or or maybe I forget the original titles like this land is 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 my land. But so this is a Woody Guthrie song, which which he wrote uh, back in the back in the 1930s when he got so sick of hearing Kate, um, uh, the the Irving Berlin song God, "God Bless America" that he wrote this sort of sarcastic uh, a song uh, that you know had a much more egalitarian lefty undertone, and the subtitle is "A Struggle for a New Commonwealth." So. Um, yeah, maybe to kick us off, could you tell us about uh, why you picked this title and why why the focus on Commonwealth specifically? Yeah. So the Woody Guthrie resonance <clears throat> is exactly right. And the way he wrote, um, you're right, the line, this land is our land, doesn't appear in the song. This land is your land, this land is my land, um, as a response to Berlin. Um, you, you could say that since 2016, a lot of people on the center and left of center identify themselves as trying to save America, especially centrists. And um, this is, the book is, among other things, part of an argument about what it is there to be saved or better to be achieved or aimed at. Um, It tries to put a kind of radical, egalitarian, progressive um, pressure on a moment of, of political crisis. Um, so in that, um, so that there is a kind of deliberate effort to echo that um, step that Woody Guthrie made. Um, the idea of commonwealth I use in the book to describe a kind of um, economy and social order as, a, as an ideal, as a kind of horizon to aim at, where people would not get their living at the cost of treating one another as competitors, as profit-making opportunities, as targets and threats, um, and where we wouldn't get our own survival at the kind of um, ineluctable cost of using up and breaking down the larger living world. So it has a social dimension first of reciprocity uh, and equality and uh, an ecological dimension second. And if you make that more concrete, it would be an economy, for example, that would have a lot of the characteristics of the radical Green New Deal. You'd see spending and investment and even what um, Martin Haglund, the philosopher, has identified as the theory of value at work in the economy, Mm -hmm. turned toward 
what some theorists call social reproduction and ecological reproduction. So it means you'd be valuing the work of helping the world to go on. You'd be valuing the work of bringing in the next generation and accompanying and ushering out the last generation. You'd be, um, you'd be in some ways at the personal level, at like the level of conscience, you would be trying to present people when they arrive in the world with like a picture of a possible life that would be a more decent and less destructive thing and less shaped by the kind of tragedy that I think is built into a situation where to some extent you get yours at the cost of others and you get your life at the cost of, of a larger life. I guess one more thing to say about that. I've talked to you know, friends in descent and Jacobin world about why this old and idiosyncratic word commonwealth is at the center of the book rather than something like eco-socialism. And part of the answer is that I, I've always been kind of a Wendell Berry socialist, which is to say <laughs> the book starts in some ways from a kind of ethical appeal and an appeal sort of at the level of the the quality of your experience in which there's this impulse for your life to make a sort of sense and not be torn between kind of care and destruction. Uh, and in this book, I wanted to start there on a place that's almost, it's almost pre-programmatic and pre-ideological, though I argue in the book that if you take it seriously, it has some programmatic and ideological consequences. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, what what when I think of a commonwealth, right, I think of, like, Hobbes. And you talk about Hobbes a little bit in the book. And I feel like, you know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but but um, it, 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 it strikes me, you know, going back to uh, a previous, you know, previous political systems and, and political ideologies in kind of, you know, uh, before America was was ever a country, um, in the days of in the days of monarchy and the days of you know your your sort of empires and 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 so on, and from my reading of history, the 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 monarchies, the the kingdoms and the and the empires, which which tended to last a, a reasonably long time, were were often like like quite brutal like terrible places to live in many ways but they took your you know your conception of a commonwealth at least somewhat seriously right um you know like the places that were just like purely pure rapaciousness pure conquest pure just extraction of tribute and resources you're like alexander the great uh empire or like the 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 uh, uh genghis khan's uh, khanate it's like as soon as the central figure of those type of societies like dies, like they just tend to fall to pieces immediately. There's just no glue in there. And I feel like that, you know, would you say that's sort of a fair like like a fair sort of the resonance you're trying to capture is like in the most general sense, whether you're talking about uh, you know, socialism, left liberalism, whatever, like like the the overriding objective should be about like sort of catering to the broad citizenry and trying to uh, 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 make make it so that you know the people, the next generation, that that the that the political unit can continue to exist and not just devour itself somehow or just like blow into a million pieces. Yes, I would. I think that's a great way of capturing what I think is a widely shared kind of core moral instinct about what political life ought to produce that a lot of people share. It's a great description of the one that I was sort of, the thing that I was sort of calling pre-ideological or pre-programmatic. And that is definitely the resonance that, um, that, that I'm seeking in that word. Yeah. 
Well, and right, the ancient Greeks tethered the stability or duration of the regime to the, the normative good, right? Like starting with Plato and, and the idea is that, that uh, even with Aristotle empirically studying 158 different constitutions to see how long uh, various regimes lasted. And those are just different um, epistemological approaches to, to seeing what the good regime is and, and how it could flourish. And, and, and part and parcel of that, of course, was the human flourishing of the individual as a microcosm, right? Um, you know, to, to take a, a riff on Mitt Romney, not just corporations are people, but polices are people, right? Like polities are people. And, and I think much of what you're talking about in the Commonwealth is that uh, we're all bound up together in our flourishing in, in more ways than we realize, I think. And, and, and in fact, bound up with, with nature and the material and the materiality um, that, we, that we take for granted, both um, as nature and then in the artifice that we make from nature. And so, so we need to think more about these connections and how um, the ecological fate uh, of this world is so uh, bound up with the choices we make and therefore the happiness of, of our artificial world and the lives we live in it. Completely. That's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. I, I think I want to say two things in response to that. And one sort of picks up also, Ryan, on what you were just saying um, last. Um, I think there are two big ways that um, we tend in, in this country right now toward uh, loss of any commonwealth attachment um, and toward um, kind of uh, uh, centrifugal energy and, and uh, self-destruction. Uh, and one of, one of those is the, that um, market-first ideology and market-dominated ways of understanding economic and ultimately political life. It's been this incredibly powerful anti-politics that's drained the aspiration to choose and pursue um, organizing values and define and shape the social world. Um, those are exactly the political capacities that we need in a time of acute ecological crisis, and yet they've been hollowed out over the last 50 years of, now say the word for the first time in the conversation, neo neoliberal ideology. Um, <laughs> and um, so, that, so that's, that's one, um, and you know, obviously we can talk more about it. Um, the second is... But we live in this, this bizarre kind of built environment in which, um, one thing I observe in the book, there's so much built world out there, um, such a huge yeah. manufactured yeah. exoskeleton for human life, that for every one of us, there's about 27, on a global average, there's about 2,700 tons of built environment, roads and buildings and cars and cables. And we are animals in that exoskeleton, like a mollusk, like is helpless if you take it out of its shell. Um, there's a point in the book where I do a thought experiment that I actually did when a hurricane was bearing down on Durham and we were trying to figure out what our plan was. And we started imagining, well, what are we capable of when the power goes out, when the data goes out, when gasoline networks go down, when food networks go down? And pretty quickly you realize that everything we're capable of doing, like all the human functions, connecting, being connected with our family, having a social life, staying alive, participating in the economy and the culture, we all do through this huge, weighty, built world. And it's that built world that actually determines more than any individual choices or any kind of personal virtue we have, what our ecological impact is. You know, if you're a person in this world, there's a certain footprint that is just built in because you're participating, unless mm -hmm. you're a multi-multi-millionaire and you can literally just like buy a different technological apparatus for yourself, just for yourself. And even then, not really. Um, so, so this, like, here's what, here's what I think to make the point happens first 
this system works so well in some ways that we massively overestimate our autonomy. Um, it makes us yeah. feel really independent of one another, but actually we are profoundly dependent on this jointly produced world. Um, but it's, it's invisibility and the way that we fail to think critically about it makes us act as if we were the most autonomous individuals in history when we're kind of, mm. we're kind of the opposite. Um, and to turn back to the first point about neoliberalism and political capacity, if we're going to change how we're living, especially toward the larger world, it's got to happen partly in terms of remaking this built world. That is a political project and a bigger political project than we've undertaken in countries like this for a long time. No, it's interesting. When I, I talk to my students about Rousseau, and you mentioned Rousseau at several points, um, there are a few things that resonate there, and one of which is that that point that you make, which is as much as Rousseau is a, a back to nature kind of person, he thinks that we can't go back at this point. That's it's, it's like taking a domesticated cat and throwing it into the wild, right? Because we've, we've, we've uh, become totally conditioned to rely on each other. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but then the, the political choices we make for political inequality and what uh, to create, and you may, you have these fantastic statistics about just how much this uh, this artifice is. I keep using that word because I'm also thinking of of a rent and and um, and, and and work, right? Like there's so so much that's and and it occurs to me that when you're when you're bringing in these beautiful points about the need to be conscious, right, to deliberate and and to I mean the realm of action, action what, exactly, what, work and what, action. Yeah, the action in a way needs to be about we need to think what we are doing with respect to the work to that human artifice that that we're creating, um, and and it could mean you know whether or not our planet survives as well. Yep, all of that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in my in my weird day profession, we say I would like to associate myself with everything Alexi the Greek said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just found it such such a, a lovely um, a lovely book to read because it it provoked in me not not just these these theoretical connections, but it really also read in in a way um, that felt interconnected and, and felt. Um, I mean, you kind of flow between discussions of uh, your history, your your you know, um, and natural history, and and the materiality of the world, but then also our our how that blends in with what we imagine and, and what we imagine ourselves to be, and some of the problems with how we treat the the actual material world, whether it's nature or artifice, is because of these uh, imaginings we do or don't have about each other and about the world. Um, and so I thought, you know, it was, it was almost a, a base superstructure connection that, that you're, you're diving into, in, but in this really kind of meditative way that I, that I really enjoyed. So um, yeah, maybe, maybe you can talk a bit, a bit about this, um, this connection between materiality and, and imagination uh, and the role that, that maybe as we think what we are doing, um, thinking those things together might, might play. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you just said. Um, I, think I, have, I know that I have a very romantic relation to writing, which is possibly naive, but it's a naivete that I'm just going to go with and see what I can do with, which is that there's actually something at stake in trying to get the phrasing into a form that somehow resonates. It's an overused uh, metaphor, but it somehow somehow catches the same chord as the um, abstract point you're trying to make. And yeah, I it resembles the form it. You're, should somehow yes. follow the idea. I felt that the 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 style resembled the point you were making. It really, it really like um, it, it, I, I really affectively felt. Um, the kind of thing that, which is so important for, I think, politically to get people to feel and, and know in an embodied way that which you want them to understand cognitively, uh, I think is important. And so I think, I, I don't know, it, it works for me. It helps me understand what you were saying even more because I could feel the point. You are my ideal reader. Uh, <laughs> and it is actually true about political language, right? I mean, if we look at the last couple of presidents, just as almost random examples, they um, it rhetorically embodied in so many ways the dispositions toward politics and the social order that they were trying to persuade people of. 
Um, and they're both very powerful users of language to conjure up a certain kind of affect that also makes certain kinds of principled appeals more plausible and pushes certain others kind of off the off to the margins of of, of believability. So, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's real. Books are not always read carefully enough or with enough investment to for it to come through. But it's the same. It's, well, it's look, all language. When, when when we must think what we are doing, the book is is a piece of artifice that you are creating uh, in a way that is just as important to think about. Sorry, I, don't, I didn't mean for this to be such an, a, few, a few, you know, I don't mean to play the sycophant. You know, this is just, a, it's, I, I really I feel, I don't feel sycophantized. But I will try to speak to the question you you actually Posed about materiality and imagination, um, I think you could you could start with uh, something that someone who was a friend who was asking me about the book the other day prompted me to reflect on that a lot of um, ideas that are treated as sort of free floating parts of American ideology or imagination are actually deeply tied. To our current infrastructure, like individualism and libertarianism as they manifest themselves in this country, and especially in American masculinity, but not only, they are totally highway and automobile. Mm, yeah. I mean, the idea that you can just get out there on your own, you can always get away, you can always get somewhere else. Mythically, you know, people say, oh, it's the cowboy on the range, but it wasn't the cowboy on the range until the range was, was closed. Um, as a widely shared idea about who we are, it depends on a certain uh, mm. machinery, a certain very big, very heavy, very publicly financed machinery. And even like the opposite note, like res adult responsibility, mm. growing up and taking care of the people you need to take care of is associated, I think, in the dominant American imagination with the landscape of the suburb or the exurb, right? The freestanding house, the car that's now the car that you drive the kids around in. Um, what, like, what if, what if those had different built landscapes associated? Mm. Like, what if we had a landscape, made a landscape that taught us a little more about interdependence? Like, obviously, buses, free buses, trains, um, uh, really sort of banal example, but I'm looking out the window and here where we've just moved to New York from Durham earlier this year. Um, and we don't have any backyard, obviously, but I can see a public playground across the street. Um, and our, if we're still here, our kid is going to learn that playing is something you do in publicly provided infrastructure that's open to all comers. And that's a kind of deep lesson, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to return to this uh, this masculinity uh, point in, in a minute, but uh, you, you, we've been talking about environmentalism and, uh, you know, the, like, like the, 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 the ideological approach to, to nature. And later in the book, you have, you have some, some pretty interesting things to say about, uh, you know, what, what, what we might call mainstream environmentalism, uh, today and how that was actually a, f a fairly contingent product of, of a few like developments in the 1970s and 1980s. So could, so could you go into that a little bit and how, how we might um, um, uh, build out, you know, a, a much more holistic environmentalism that isn't so, you know, there, there's this, the Jonathan Franzen article uh, for, for, uh, that he's done like a couple of times now that's like, ah, climate change is, 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 uh, it's, it's horning in on my bird obsessions and just this very pinched and narrow, narrow view of what, what defending the environment is, is actually like. All right. Yeah. Um, so totally. So for, for the last 15 or 20 years, American envi mainstream environmentalism, which is embodied in groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Sierra Club, um, mass membership groups, which do a 
lot of good work and um, like um, uh, thank goodness they're there. But it's, they've been struggling to reckon with this kind of narrowness about how the, they conceive of the problems they address, what is and isn't an environmental problem and whose problem it is. Um, that sort of mainstream conception has been often fairly tagged with being attached to a kind of artificial separation where the environment is the relatively pristine woods and waters out there, separate from neighborhoods where people live. It's separate from especially um, the particular vulnerability to pollution and other environmental harms of marginalized and disadvantaged groups, especially non-white people in poor communities in this color in this country. Um, the mainstream environmental groups have been relatively late to frontlining those those problems. So um, the environmental movement that has those blind spots, and is, while excellent in many ways, <clears throat> a kind of mainstream, respectable litigation and negotiation-oriented outfit, um, really came into its contemporary form through some big grants that the Ford Foundation gave in the early and mid-1970s, and through some very deliberate diplomatic brokering efforts to consolidate the 11 major groups around a consistent woods and waters and anti-pollutants but not environmental justice agenda in the early 80s. So before that, it was much more interesting. <clears throat> um, if you look back behind Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, for example, you find that the work she's drawing on was rooted in the field of industrial toxicology, which is about the human environment of workers. It was about the poisons people were exposed to in the workplace and in neighborhoods of industrial workers. And the, the conception of the environment was a totally fluid one. The environment was the factory, the environment was the neighborhood, the environment could also be streams and forests where Carson took it, but it was all of the above. Um, the wilderness movement, um, the sort of extreme trees first um, kind of politics focused around public lands that groups like the Sierra Club are often um, tagged with valuing more than people. That's not fair now and it hasn't been fair for, for a while. Um, but even that movement was founded by socialists who saw preserving some wilderness areas as part of a much larger and more ambitious egalitarian planning agenda. They were interested in planned communities, they were interested in intensive public transport, and they saw wilderness as one fragment of a much larger effort to build a kind of humane environment. Um, so what happened, what happened to that? Um, to some extent, some of the interesting radicalisms were just were relatively marginalized in the way that a lot of interesting radicalisms were in the high water period of the Cold War. Um, the environmental groups, such as they were, were definitely more moderate by the mid-60s than they had been in the 30s when like, intense New Dealers and labor activists were doing the groundwork. Um, but still in the 60s, and early 70s, when the modern environmental movement really, really blew up politically, there was an episode where it really looked like there were a couple of years where it really looked like progressive labor unions and environmentalists were going to get together. Um, if one of the major funders of the first Earth Day was the United Auto Workers. Their president, Walter Reuther, was a good, solid left social democrat who... Um, through the UAW behind a kind of broader egalitarian social vision. In the Appalachian coal fields, the Mine Workers for Democracy, which was a, a radical union group that uh, won the UMWA presidency in the uh, late 60s, very early 70s, um, very early 70s, um, called for banning strip mining and for striking to protect environmental standards. Um, and then a bunch of things happened. Austerity happened. Um, 
the economic crisis of the mid-70s made it much easier to pit labor against environment. The environmentalists took this kind of technocratic mainstream direction that split them from what was left of labor. And then that whole moment, that whole moment was gone. But if we look back, I guess the short thing is environmental politics has been about the economic order. It's been about distribution. It's been about struggles for power and justice. And it's been about making the whole artificial human world as well as the non-human world for a long time. And in some ways, we're, we're coming back to older themes to recover mm. and, and repurpose mm. them as, as much as we are hitting new ground. And that seems right. And, and with the Green New Deal, I, I know that uh, early on, there was a lot of attack from the right, especially about well, why isn't why is this about everything? It should just be about one one thing. Why is this also a jobs guarantee? Why is this all? And in a way, what you're pointing to, I think, is is quite um, quite brilliant because if the problem is the um, ideological and the imaginary separation of that which is actually interconnected, then the solution to that is to remind us in our ideas of how all the things you just talked about are intertwined, the ecology, the artificial world, our, our actual worlds at work and in the home and, and our relations to each other, our social relations. And so it seems to make good sense to me to fight all these battles in a way that, that shows how intertwined they really are. And the intertwining is not, um, this is just to draw out what you're saying, the intertwining is not just poetic, right? I mean, the, the, the Green New Deal being about everything is not only, like some of my sentences, symbolic of, of everything being connected. It's that we actually need to be switching social investment toward non-extractive forms of caregiving, for example. And we need to be generating an economy where individual lives are more secure in part because an insecure individual life, where in some real sense you're never, you're always precarious, you're never fully safe, and you never have enough. Um, that's like the microeconomic version of the macroeconomics of a world where growth is a political imperative, because everyone is kind of running scared. Right, but literally, the what we have done to nature, what we have done by extracting and doing what we have done to nature in order to create our artificial world is literally causing the natural world to kill us. And in fact, it's killing us in the same asymmetrical way in, in terms of environmental racism that's harming populations that we're also harming disproportionately through our other political choices. Like, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the, um, the, this... To, to 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 build to build on your point, Alexia, a little bit. Um, um, a, another something I wanted to ask you about. So you were, Jed, you were from West Virginia originally, right? The 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 the, the, the most real America place there is. Um, um, I guess and, recent, recently chosen for that. It used to be yeah. a, it used to be seen as a real strange place. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, of course, it's. Uh, it, you know, this, this is always a heavy subtext of, of, of bullshit in any kind of like uh, 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 designation. Of course, of course, yeah. But um, just noting that even that even that bullshit designation has been like people have made different things of Appalachia at different times. I don't mean to. I'm sorry. I'm stepping on what you're. No, 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 no. no. I, if if you don't do it, I'm going to do it because he's so used to me doing it. He he'll feel <laughs> awkward if if people are interrupting him every every few seconds. So please, but. But you talk about, um, it, you know, the, 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 the kind of ideological um, um, program of uh, uh, the, old, the old ways of doing things, you know, the, the, the old um, mine workers and, and the, you know, the way that, that West Virginia politics used to operate, which I think, you know, as recently as like 2014, West Virginia was just total democratic stronghold. I think the Democrats have the governorship and both houses of the state legislature. Now it's just like absolute the 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 the, the most pro-Trump state in the entire country. And um you say that that like the 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 you know the so-called war on coal, the the this kind of imaginary uh 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 st structure of um you know that this this purported 
attempt to destroy the 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 coal industry by Obama and whatever it it quote replaces the old material stakes of solidarity with symbolic and rhetorical anti elitism, and yet you also go on to to talk about uh, the teacher strike in West Virginia and in other countries, and um, so I guess you know being a a West Virginia native, maybe still knowing some folks there. Do you think there is a a a uh, uh, some kind of productive politics happening there? And people like like maybe uh, learning a new way or relearning the old ways of thinking about their place in the world in a way which is not just like just sort of cynically designed to get them to vote for people who will just get them blown up in mind disasters and then you know cast aside or selling your pensions to wall street and so on yeah i mean i hope so um <laughs> so yeah i um west west virginia has been tacking away from being a democratic stronghold for a little longer. Um, when I was True. cutting my teeth in environmental politics there way back in the early 90s when I was just out of high school, um, there was one Republican in the state Senate out of 34 seats and it was a <laughs> tiny number of Democrats. But a lot of those Republicans were very right wing. It was, excuse me, Democrats were very right wing. Um, it was a, it was a one party state, which meant that all the ideological tendencies were contained in, in one party. Um, but yeah. it did go Democrat. This is not your main point, but uh, it went Democrat on the national stage pre pretty remarkably. Um, I, it was one of the, um, States that voted for Dukakis in 88, for example, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about it now. It was, I don't know, 7 or 11. It was some slow, odd number of, of states. Yeah. Um, but already in 2000, Gore lost there. And Gore lost there in part because of coal. Um, it had gone for Clinton twice. Uh, and after that... Since then, I don't think a Democratic presidential candidate has won. So, so, that, so that turn has been happening, and the kind of mobilization of an old populism that was rooted in the coal fields and their oppositional culture and was often quite progressive in its effect and sent some extraordinary people to Congress and to the governor's office, as well as some extraordinarily corrupt people, but both. And the, um, <laughs> uh, has has been getting replaced by as you you captured it really nicely in that phrase from the book by a kind of extractivist identity politics um uh a kind of um sleep deprivation brain um brain um yeah, no problem the minds the minefields especially have been um kind of politically actuated by a sense of a fight, by <clears throat> war being pretty close to the surface of politics for a long time. And the strike was, af after the mine wars with actual shooting ended, the strike was the basic form of that. And the strike was a very intense kind of class flexing. Um, my wife's grandfather was a union coal miner his whole life. And one of the most memorable stories his, her dad, his son, told me, um, which I mentioned in the book, is that the day that they heard that John L. Lewis, the um, sort of founder of the modern UMWA, had died, they drove up to some um, mine way back in a hollow where there were just a few guys on and there was no phone to tell them, you might as well come out because you know we're going to strike. Um, and they were going to do a one-day strike that was how they were going to mourn. Like you yeah. mourn him by going yeah, out and flexing yeah. and showing that you don't, that you can collectively not go to work, which is amazing. So that yeah. kind of defiance is there all along and it gets turned to a new enemy. Basically it gets turned to, it was, what was, what I was tripping over was that I realized I was going to mangle the cliche about the enemy of my enemy being my friend. In this case, the coal bosses are the traditional enemy, but the, federal environmental regulators who are seen as the enemy of that enemy 
now become the greater enemy in a way because the miners have been convinced that they're in the same corner as the coal industry itself. And in a certain way, that may be true because there are so few jobs and they're not coming back and no alternative economy has been built there. Um, so I guess in that way, it's actually a little bit unfair for me to say there's an extractivist identity politics. There absolutely is. And that's also not something to be given the back of your hand because it's about people finding you know, meaning in their work and about finding ways to care for the people who rely on them and feeling like the world needs the competences that they have. And that's all. That's all real, although it can get turned to very destructive purposes. But there's also a certain kind of narrow but real, like a desperate rationality in it, which is to say they like what, whether there are 2,000 more coal jobs in the, you know, in the Kentucky or West Virginia coal fields than there would have been under a different administration is actually really important to a lot of, a lot of voters and families there <clears throat> because they really are in that corner. Um, but there's also the myth of the war on coal, which is a, a um, destructive one that calls up the militant history of the region in a way that, that just basically mobilizes people to continue tearing down, totally tearing down and destroying their terrain for another 10 years, 15 years before the jobs are all fully gone. It's, a, it's really just like pageant of destruction. But <clears throat> you were, so you were asking about the other thing that's happened there. West Virginia had an early and amazingly powerful and popular statewide strike. It was not, it was not, a, not a legal strike. It was not a recognized um, teachers union. They were supported um, by the public. They went out in all 55 counties. They um, marched wearing red bandanas. The red bandanas were the same ones that the miners wore in the mine wars before the UMWA was founded when they fought um, the Pinkerton uh, thugs and the, um, and the National Guard to conjure up this image of class solidarity from a different time in that the militant history of that place. So what I find really moving about that is looking back to the same history that's been so, I think, ultimately perverted in the war on coal story and finding in it a kind of basis for solidarity and mobilization around uh, non-destructive, non-extractive, socially necessary work, to use that phrase again, the work of social reproduction, taking care of the coming generation, um, keeping things going. Uh, and I love that the specifically, uh, specific identification as workers that's implied by wearing the red bandana is something the teachers did, even though in the kinds of places where I grew up, teachers kind of have a choice to identify as middle class. And the difference between middle class and poor or more precarious, a lot is at stake there. You know, it's not a huge gradation in terms of annual income, but in terms of who you are in communities where um, the differences are narrow but intense it can really count for a lot. So I just thought there was something very powerful in it. And if we're gonna have, this is not an original observation to me by any stretch, but if we're gonna have a powerful labor movement in the next century, it's not gonna be the industrial residues that in some cases, in some cases, Trump is appealing to, not the UAW say, That's a, I wouldn't wanna suggest that. Um, it's gonna, it's gonna be um, healthcare workers and teachers and people who are doing the work where there are still tens of millions of jobs and the jobs are not gonna go away and the jobs right now are really um, dangerous and exploitative and, um, and vulnerable. Yeah, that, that reminds me of the beginning of your book when you're talking about um, homeland and home and, and how it, it can be a place 
that you love and take pride in, even if it's killing you. And, and there's lots of levels to that, right? Um, but but there's also this conditioning that you speak of where, where there are imaginaries and ideologies that convince people that they're meant to do bad work and work that harms them and kills them. And, and so it's very complicated because we're talking about real feelings of, of love and loyalty and connectedness to, to place and to, and to history. And we have to value and respect that. And at the same time, have the creativity and imagination to change those effective ties in a way that's good for those people. And that binds those people to other people who are precarious in, in, in a way that can help us all get out of this mess. Right? Exactly. Exactly. One of the things I'm trying to do with the description of the minefields and the coal war is portray what I think for uh, people who read the book will often be a very um, unfamiliar way of relating to your landscape and your work and your gender and um, it's a different sense of where your dignity comes from uh, and, what, and what you're willing to fight for. But one that at a slightly seen at a little different angle or at a slightly higher level of abstraction is actually not so alien at all. It's a, like we're saying, it's about thinking you do work that's worthwhile. It's about taking care of people who rely on you. It's about having some meaningful relationship to the place where you are. Um, and the, in, in that way, the book is, is partly uh, it's an act of translation, of sort of civic and political translation. Um, I don't say this in the book, but I, I, I think one of the great contributions that the revival of the left in the last eight or ten years has made is the recognition that politics is a fight. And that it's not a Quaker meeting and you're not and it's not a market. Ideally, it's not marketing. You're actually trying to build majorities by changing people's minds. And you don't have to convince everyone. You have to build a majority and you have to politically defeat your opponents and impose uh, the settlement that you are trying to mobilize a majority for. But I think there can sometimes come and this is by no means only the left, but this is this is really everyone's problem right now, there can come a sense that once you've figured out who the enemy is, you don't even have to try to see where they might be coming from. Um, and this book is really interested in how very different, uh, it, how very different worldviews from mine or my probable readers come about and keep going and how we can try to understand them as like other other parts of a human world. The, the book talks about denialism and originally in the climate situation and expands that out. You know, I think that 10 years ago when we talked about climate denial, we talked about um, rejecting the science. Uh, and I think today it's really clear that Trumpist denialism is much more about denying the ethical and political implications of climate change and of global and ecological interdependence generally. It's about saying whatever is happening, fuck the people who are going to get the worst of it. We're going to um, we're going to build more symbolic and affective and political than literal walls. But the wall is a kind of monument to the idea that our responsibilities stop not only at the border, but at various internal lines of citizenship and other kinds of belonging. Exactly at the moment when, like you were saying, we're doing, we're involved in more harm to more people in more places in the world than ever before. And there's a greater need for a reckoning about responsibility and sharing out burdens and sharing out the means of life on a bigger scale. So denialism moves from being a scientific to being a kind of political and ethical betrayal. Um, and I would say in the broadest sense, um, the book is arguing against any denial that we're all here and have to contend with one another some way or another. Um, and the biggest version of that is thrown in the face of Trumpism and its political and ethical walls. Um, 
But another version of it is um, sort of offered as a criticism to anyone who thinks that you can stop thinking about people once they vote the wrong way or take some posture that doesn't make sense to you. Um, partly because it's for them, too, that you want to be building whatever new world you want to build. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. No, well, well said. I, I just want to reconnect that, that point um, to the forms of denialism that Trump inspires, including those of the kind of eco-fascist terrorists who shot up El Paso uh, and the way that, um, that the response to that, as you say, needs to understand the, the roots of, um, of, of that kind of, of action, not psychologically, but, but just politically being one that actually recognizes climate disaster and recognizes scarcity and recognizes um, the exigencies we're in. And therefore, uh, I think, as you suggest, the, um, the capaciousness of the Green New Deal has to be matched by the capaciousness of our willingness to relate to, to those who we don't know um, how they might identify if we're successful in shaping the imaginary and the ability for people to think differently about how we relate to one another. So I think that's very important. Yeah. And of course, at some point, the, there are people you just have to beat and people you just have to contain. Yeah, right. But 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 there's but there is also in a broader sense, you you're trying to share the future with with everyone. Yeah. Time and a place for each each kind yeah, of battle. battle right? Exactly. That's exactly right. I think the kind of judgment that we're working to develop in politics right now, and it feels very. Uh, under-exercised because we used we were pretending many people were pretending for a while that it wasn't necessary is to judge who you have to try to just like you have to try to flat out defeat and who you can in some ways talk to or try to convert or try to imagine uh, collaboration or cohabitation with um, like that's an incredibly important judgment. There, it, there are opponents, there are enemies, there are potential collaborators, and those are as much as at stake in those categories. And I think we're just not that accustomed to thinking about where they are. I think the other thing to be said about right-wing denialism, which we all need to take really seriously right now, is at the moment, I think, much as good as I think the Green New Deal idea is doing, the right is making much more creative and politically generative use of the horizon of scarcity and ecological crisis um, than the left, in part because scarcity and things coming apart and the kind of breakdown of familiar expectations and literal boundaries that... Um, Episode, events like migrant flows um, and refugee flows represent, um, it has a pretty strong affinity with pulling up the gates and looking out for your own. Those grooves are pretty well developed. And the um, effort to build new lines of solidarity in those circumstances requires more creativity and I'm not sure that we've actually, well, I'm sure we haven't done it yet. This, uh, <clears throat> that's a, that's a, a good road into the, um, maybe the, the last question I, I wanted to ask you as we wrap up here, you, you talk a bit in the book about, um, you know, the, the, the idea of manhood and how, how much of our currently sort of poisoned, political status quo is like that poisoning is driven by like warped versions of manhood, you know, that, that we got to, we got to defend the border and we got to defend the family and, and, um, you know, the, 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 uh, SJWs are, are, are destroying, you know, traditional masculinity and, and all that kind of shit. Um, but, uh, one one thing that that has sort of struck me uh, with increasing strength over the last last you know few months, we recently well, me and me and Alexi went to see the movie Ad Astra with Brad Pitt, 
which is all about male feelings. To be and clear, a- we didn't go see the film with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt was in the film. <laughs> the, um, but but so that, that's that's a, you know it's it's a, it's it's a little bit of a plotting movie, but it, but it but it tr- attempts to treat you know um, it's about a, a man who is who it, who is sort of been uh, kind of poisoned by traditional masculinity and and dealing with that and dealing with you know the 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 his his shitty relationship with his father and so on and it, but it it strikes me that like you know you look at these the so many of the problems that are that are that are afflicting the 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 world you know conservative american republican conservatism uh incel mass murderers um isis that is me too the whole me yeah, too sexual yeah. violence that's been yeah. D- driven just to 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 varying degrees by uh, a, a kind of crisis of male identity, I suppose, uh, a, a, a feeling among m- many men that they they have no place in the world, and they struggle. You know, they reach out to try to f- try to find something, and um, you know, the left, and I, f- I think you know, based on personal experience, to to some degree is really not there uh is not really providing a kind of a kind of uh, a, a story or or a, or a role model or archetype or something like that it's all about what don't you do you don't do this you don't do that in many cases these are very important lessons but um you know i think that in some ways that can maybe sort of drive people to end up as acolytes of like jordan peterson or you know ben shapiro these like sort of hyper macho assholes who are are they're 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 peddling a a kind of a a poison chalice you know to be like oh it's all the women's fault that you're you can't get laid and 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 so on and so forth so um i guess you know you you recently had a had a baby if i'm not mistaken Mm -hmm. Um, you could probably hear him just now (laughs) you had a son even better um if if you've had any, you know, I mean, this is like like the th- one of the thorniest problems I would I would I would imagine, you know, across like so many countries. But if 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 you've if you've had any sort of insights into that uh, in the in the process of of writing the book and 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 you know experiencing it the last few years, like where is there a place for men that is healthier than than the one that that kind of exists or doesn't exist now? What might that look like, right? Yeah. So, in thinking about the Coalfields chapter especially, I found myself thinking a lot just how cruel it is that people are led to build their whole identities, their sense of usefulness and strength and honor around work that becomes obsolete when it no longer produces an optimal return on investment and is then discarded. And so they and all their form of work are discarded by global capital flows. And what do you expect when people's identity is built around a sector that then goes away, other than for them to develop a kind of reactionary identity politics around it. I mean, what are, what are they left with? They're going to become computer programmers. Um, so <laughs> it's that's what they're told, right? That's Actually. what they're told. That's what they're told. These kind of predatory promises that will like retrain you and send you to Asheville or LA. Like the, the cruelty of that particular bait and switch, like we're going to let your, everything you are is going to be built around a technological industrial episode that's going to go away during your working life. Like that is savage. Um, so that doesn't really go to your question though. And, and while I, I think I don't think, and I think you don't think that it's the job of the of the DSA to figure out what men should be. There's no question that men are trying to figure out what to be, and it's not that has not been the task that the left revival has taken has taken on itself. I totally agree with that. Um, I feel when I think about what I want for our son, 
um, which I have been thinking about a lot and we've been talking about a lot. I, I think the thing with, with gender is that like with any other tradition, what you want to do is try to find out what are the actually really valuable and humane elements that have gotten entangled with the poison and the hurt and the oppression and how can you pull those apart and how can you think about aiming to let a person feel that they can have the detoxified version of both the stuff that's been assigned to men and the stuff that's been assigned to women. Like if he, to some extent, and if we had a daughter, if she in the future, to some extent could, um, feel, yeah, I can be strong and angry and self-assertive without like participating in the denigration of whatever I'm going to treat as the other genders, or I can be really caring and, um, really attentive to the feelings of others without um, the implication that that somehow makes me weak or dependent. Like there's such, both Bell Hooks and actually Wendell Berry are very good on this. There's great stuff, (laughs) great human stuff in all the gender formations. And there's really terrible distorted stuff in all the gender formations. And the terrible distorted stuff is partly based on the artificial and enforced separation, segregation of it, and its, and its hierarchical segregation. So while you don't want to say that everyone should be everything, because not everyone will want to be everything at once, you sort of want to make the less toxic versions like freely available to be developed into a set of um, emotionally resilient social virtues. Like, that's what I want for him. And at the same time, I get so angry that he's being thrown into a social world that's going to ask him to come back to what we were talking about at the beginning, to see other people as competitors or as profit opportunities, to see himself as a site of human capital, to be always afraid and greedy. (laughs) I mean, it's terrible. Um, And I wonder about how we're going to have what I've started to think of as the infrastructure conversation, where I'll say to him, you know, you're good, you're good, and the world, actually the world is good. But you and I are not really good for the world. And it's not exactly up to us whether we're good for the world or not. You know, we take our two pounds of compost over to the compost place, (laughs) but there are 2,700 tons of built environment behind us. Um, So, man, um, I... I feel the cruel logic of this world much more vividly than I have before. Like I, you can't, because you can't completely protect someone from it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's yeah. Um, and like, how can you how can you look away from it when your attachment to the future is now so much more than abstract? Yeah. Well, in this you. You you talk in the in the book about the 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 old you know nineteen seventies anti-natalist environmentalism the, the Paul Paul Ehrlich or whatever the the population bomb, and I I still see fragments of this you know on the left today, uh, people saying oh there's just too many people they're just they're just they're just breeding too much, and um, that's something that I used to think you know when I when I was much younger you know in high school and stuff and and. As I get older, you know that that increasingly strikes me as 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 such a a a gruesome v- v- point of view. Um, well, and, who's going to say who's going to say which ones are too many? Right. Yes. And, well, and and like like the but just the 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 fact I would say that 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 having a child, um, you know, is is an an act of kind of desperate hope in these days. And the and the and that what the point you know the whole reason to do uh, climate policy and and all these like you know like, like desperately needed engineering 
um, you know, projects to like fix the, 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 our dysfunctional relationship with the biosphere is to make it so the next generation can, can exist. And, it, you know, not just humans, but also animals and so on. But like, it, it, it's, it's, uh, such, you know, I think about that, uh, uh, I, I, I forget who it was, but there was a guy, uh, like a, a while ago who was doing a sort of tour saying like, well, maybe we should think about the welfare of the next generation by not, not having them. I was like, well, Jesus, I'm glad my parents didn't decide that. Well, and not, not only that, but like part of what we've been talking about is, and, and I, I think part of the harm that we've done to ourselves and to nature is thinking of us as not uh, born of nature, not natural, not part part of everything that uh, that is organic, and that is, I mean, that 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 interconnection should lead us to want to, as some people have been fighting for, give rivers human rights, and, and so think think of nature as deserving the rights we give ourselves, but also for 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 those on the left uh, that think this way, thinking of us as part of nature and valuable and a gift, and and both the the nature we inhabit, the the world that we create, if we do it right, and our bodies and our lives are are beautiful um, blessings and gifts that that we need to sensitize ourselves to to think what we are doing so that it can flourish in the future and in the present as much as possible uh, for everyone, right? And and that's a it's a hopeful thing, and it's it's it seems really challenging, but I think uh, as we'd say in Greek, axionesti, it is worth it. It's it's worth trying to make happen, right? Yes, let's try to be worthy of the walrus. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I mean, yeah, for real. Um, I, I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. I, the, the, maybe the last thought is so much in, that's important and valuable is going on in the current ferment of climate politics. But I hope a lot that we will teach, we'll be able to teach our son to love and be incredibly excited about the living world before he starts living in terror of its destruction. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a sort of there's a sort of catastrophe first political pedagogy that you hear about now. And in some sense, that's right. It's the responsibility of adults to look squarely at the catastrophe and mm-hmm. um, and fight for it. But I would I would like him to be able to look at a tree for a while in like fascination before I say to him that tree is going to be burnt up or think about like the beauty of an octopus before I say that that octopus is going to die um because it's like you have to you the the this is what you were just saying Alexi exactly like the richness and the value of it and of our potential to like be part of it in some way is the reason that the catastrophe, our ability to appreciate that is how we see that the catastrophe is so terrible, that it's not just right. a bleak affective right. mood, it's a crisis yeah, exactly. and, something, and something that we have to fight over. I have to get to the to the. Yes, thank you, so been, thank, thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so much. my social reproduction to a very gracious, no, great granddaughter. So, um, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's been wonderful talking with you. It's yeah. been really, really great talking with you both. Thanks for Jed, taking the time. Jed Purdy, the book is called This Land is Our Land. Uh, we'll let you get back to your social reproduction. And <laughs> hope to talk to you again before long. That'd be yeah. great. Take care. Godspeed, sir. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks again. See you. Bye. See you.